What an encouragement, huh? To see how God would take the resources that were given that day. And I was thinking the exact same thing that um, came in the form of that letter. And I'm going to have to box a, a little gnat or fly up here. Um, God's hands, his feet showed up on the scene, did they not? And, and they, they brought uh, supplies that were greatly needed. And beyond that, um, they, they did supply a little bit of food, but they, they uh, brought a meal. They brought uh, the spiritual food, the, the, the gospel, which can continue to be a source of great joy and uh, a spring within them that will allow them to rise up and even see the sovereignty of God through all of this that allowed the gospel to come and, and reach them. And that is something that we celebrate. We certainly do want to continue to um, lift them up in prayer. And thank you, Gina, for your effort to put that together. Wonderful. Well, our passage today is going to draw our attention to the Gospel of John. And you can go ahead and turn there. And as you do, I wanted to go ahead and begin our time together with an introductory comment that I believe many people in Southern California and throughout the entire world, for that matter, will find very offensive. In fact, it could be possible that there could be someone here today that might even find the statement that I'm going to share offensive. Just what a congregation wants to hear from their pastor who's been here for a couple months. And I'm sure maybe the elders are um, alert. Um, but I want to begin by sharing it. It's a simple and plain statement. It's direct, and it's this. Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. That's it. Some of you are saying, well, that, that wasn't so bad. Well, there's actually more to this statement than it initially appears in our passage today will shed more light on the depth, the seriousness, and the reality of this statement. And I continue to enjoy all the evangelism training that's taking place during the quipping hour on Sunday mornings. And this message, I believe like our evangelism training, provides, uh, provides us with a, a fundamental uh, truth that we need to keep before us when engaging the lost world that surrounds us. As we learned in our evangelism training, it is the Lord who sets the terms. The Lord sets the terms for those who come to Him. Okay, We come to Him on His terms. He is the only one who has the authority to define the terms for salvation. He is the Creator. He is the authority. He is the Judge. And as our training emphasized every person on the planet must come to him on his terms when a person is called to faith in christ he or she is called to live for christ live for his glory and that is also on his terms and we're living in a very unique time a time where there are more false voices competing with the one true voice and more vehicles to broadcast these voices than there have ever been. It is no longer 
just orators or a few people with handwritten copies of books. This turned into an unlimited broadcast of amplified and competing voices now heard daily through radio stations, television programs, podcasts, internet websites and blogs, audiobooks, just to name a few. And as the climate of moral decline decreases or increases in our society, the need for believers to be equipped to point people to the one and only true voice will also need to increase. And we have a clear and concise passage to point people that allows us to be prepared to do that today. And so often, I, I hear people on, on TV or through interactions, they'll, they'll say something to this effect. Well, the Bible says this, and, and, and the Bible says this, and I understand there's even good intentions, and I'm not being critical of that. But it has to go beyond that. It has to connect people with him. It has to point people not just to this book, but it has to point people to the deity of Christ, the one who made us, the one and the only one who has authority, the only true authority, the one that every single person will stand before and give an account, every single person on the planet, not just us, every single one of them. And there's standards and there's terms that he calls us to in salvation and then there's standards and terms that he calls us to and how we live our lives in our sanctification and there's reasons there's reasons that we can't have a homosexual couple stand here in this place and have me or anyone else marry them there are reasons that we desire to have prayer continue to be an integral part of our lives in whatever setting that we're in. God's called us to that. And people will have the opportunity to see this, but we have to go beyond the terms of living and get them to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true voice. And our passage today helps us see this. We're going to read uh, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. And this is what it has to say. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our passage today provides three affirmations why Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. 
and the outline is in your notes. Affirmation number one is this, I am God because of the works that I do. Jesus is saying this. Affirmation number two, I am God because of the salvation and the security that I give. Affirmation number three, I am God because I am one with the Father. And we'll have an opportunity to unpack each of these. And before we tackle the text, consider this background of John's gospel. The gospel of John confirms the very purpose for why it was written at the end of the book in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And these verses say this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The primary purpose of the Gospel of John, according to the book, is evangelistic and apologetic. And the word believe is used over 100 times. And this reinforces its evangelistic purpose. The Gospel of John summons its readers to saving faith in Jesus Christ and it assures, it assures believers of the divine gift of eternal life. And just this week I had two conversations with um, two different men, uh, two different, completely different occasions, and they were sharing just an abbreviated version of their testimony, and they were talking about how another brother in this church met with them to read through the Gospel of John, and how God used the Gospel of John to help them see who he was, and to see the terms in which he required for a person. It is very evangelistic. It's also apologetic. And the Gospel of John provides ammunition for us to defend the faith, especially the deity of Christ. God used the Apostle John to write to and convince his readers, uh, John's readers of Jesus' true identity as the incarnate God-man whose divine and human natures were perfectly united in one person. This was the prophesied Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the appointed one, the Savior of the world. And John's gospel is orchestrated around numerous miracles. And these miracles affirm the deity of Christ, which encourages people to believe. But we'll see this caused a problem for many people in Jesus' day, especially the Jews. The Pharisees didn't like the fact that Jesus performed miracles on the Sabbath they also didn't like the fact that he made a reference to being equal with God. And if we go all the way back to John 5.18, it actually says this, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he, was not, he, was, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And throughout the Gospel, of John, we see different accounts of Jesus facing Jewish opposition. And as a result, there was a real division that began to take place, and it's a division that still exists to this day. A division between those who believe Jesus was and is the Messiah and those who reject him as the Messiah. And this division not only exists today between Christian Jews and Orthodox Jews, but it also exists among false faiths 
and false gospels. The comment that I shared at the beginning, Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. It's not only true, but it's divisive at its core. And Jesus gives us three affirmations why he is the one and only true God. And the first one is this. Jesus said, I am God because of the works that I do. Verse 22, at that time, at the Feast of Dedication, which took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade, or depending on which translation, it might say the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. At the time of the feast of what's, uh, or what's taking place, it starts in verse 22, the Jewish feast called the Feast of Dedication. Um, it, this commemorated the renovation and the purifying of the temple after it had been uh, polluted by invaders in the year 167 B.C. In later times, it was also known as the Feast of Lamps or the Feast of Lights because of the custom of illuminating the houses while celebrating it. And the Jewish rabbis held to this tradition. Judas Maccabeus, who kicked out the heathen as they ran them off, the invaders who came in, when they ran them off, they found this vial of oil, this, this bottle of oil that was going to be used to light the sacred lamps. And they went ahead and lit the lamps, even though they had just one small bottle. And the lamps stayed lit. And it was considered a miracle because they stayed lit for eight full days. And so this became the duration of the feast. And this is the modern day Jewish expression of Hanukkah. And here the Lord finds himself surrounded by defiant Jews in Jerusalem. And it's here in verse 24 where it tells us that they gathered around Jesus. And this wasn't a friendly encounter. In, in, in the original language, it says that they encompassed him. They circled around him. Okay? They were pressing in. This is picture um, bullies on the playground. This is exactly what was going on. They, they came around him and they were enclosing in on him. And they asked Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, the Old Testament gives us a record of a number of things, but for the sake of making a point, it gives us a record of numerous messianic prophecies that pointed to the coming of Christ. And for centuries, prophets predicted the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled dozens and dozens of prophecies. In Isaiah, Daniel, Micah, Hosea, Zechariah, even in Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the Psalms, there are messianic prophecies that are fulfilled. And we certainly can't consider all of them, but I wanted to just give a picture of, and this was an encouragement to me in my study because um, I saw God's faithfulness come out. In Genesis 3.15, it predicts that the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman, and Jesus was. In Isaiah 7.14, it predicts that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and Jesus was. Micah 5.2 predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was. Hosea 11.1 predicts Mary and Joseph's flight to Egypt, sparing the life of the baby Messiah, which took place. 
Isaiah 53.3 predicts that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people, the Jews, and Jesus was. And we're actually going to see an account of this in our message today. Zechariah 11, 12 and 13 predicts that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus was. Psalm 35, 19 predicts that the Messiah would be hated without reason. And Jesus was. And this is just a sample. This is just a sampling of the messianic prophecies that have been fulfilled by Christ. Now most, if not all, the Jews that are in our story today would have had some familiarity with those prophecies. The Pharisees certainly would have had had uh, known many, many of them. And so when they're asking this question, this isn't some flipping question that they just pulled out of their hat and, and said, hey, somebody, let's, well, let's think of a question to ask Jesus. They're asking him a very direct question. But it's a loaded question. Their motive for asking this question is very sincere. And even though it's connected to years of prophetic history involving the nation of Israel, they were asking for no other reason than to find a, a, an excuse to attack Christ or that in the midst of a mob that he might say something that people would jump on him and, and shred him or that he would cause such a disturbance that he would really irritate the Romans and that they would grab him and capture him. And we have a fuller perspective today and we know that Jesus certainly didn't fit the Pharisees mold for the Messiah, right? They were looking for someone that was going to come and free them from the Roman rule and oppression. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to bring uh, an earthly establishment, an earthly kingdom, an earthly reign. They wanted freedom from Israel's oppressors. But Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy of his coming and to establish a kingdom in the life to come. And if we really boil it all the way down to why he came, and we all get this, this Messiah came to die. He came to fulfill the prophecy of his coming and to pave a way for eternal life to everyone who would believe in him as Savior and Lord. And in John 18, we have Jesus' own words right before his crucifixion and death. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is written, my kingdom is not of this realm. And we can be certain that this did not meet the expectations of the Jewish leaders. They wanted a Messiah that would empower them. They wanted a Messiah that would fit their agenda. They wanted a Messiah who didn't have an eternal mindset beyond, they, they wanted it now. They were basically saying, forget the eternal kingdom. What good does this do for us now? You can't be the Messiah. The Christ predicted to come, the chosen one in our Old Testament scriptures, he's, he's coming to free us right now. And that's not what you're saying. This is exactly what the Jewish religious people of Jesus' day were saying. And tragically, we see evidence of this even in false gospels today promoting a now mentality, right? 
We see it in the prosperity gospel movement that appeals to the human desires. It's not about Jesus being Lord. It's not about what uh, an eternal kingdom. They want something that Jesus can do for them right now. And that makes that message so appealing. So appealing. And we only see a fraction of it here in the United States. You want to know why? Because in general, we're one of the richest countries in the world. But you start going, you talk to any missionaries who are overseas, and you know what they'll tell you? That the health, wealth, and prosperity movement is pandemic. It is it is everywhere. And they spend so much time, so much time focusing on the true gospel, the true message of what Jesus came to bring. They have uh, just, it's spiritual warfare. It really is as they, as they battle for the truth and they help people to understand. Well, getting back to John chapter 10, the Jews begin with a direct question and Jesus counters with a direct response. In verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. And Jesus is saying, listen, I told you and I've done numerous miracles that prove I am the Messiah and you do not believe. And the gospel accounts give us myriads of miracles that Jesus did affirming his deity for us. And this is another example of something we don't have time to do to consider all of them. But since we're in the gospel of John, let's just go ahead and and just take a survey. And you're not going to have time to turn there with me. Just allow me to read these and share these with you if you would. In John 6, verses 15 through 21, Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature when he walks on water and stills a storm. In John 9, 1 through 41, Jesus demonstrates his authority over illness when he heals a blind man born from birth. In John 11, 17 through 45, Jesus demonstrates his authority over human life when he raises a man by the name of Lazarus after Lazarus had been dead for four days. In John 21, 6, Jesus demonstrates his authority over animals when he causes an abundance of fish to be caught in the net. And we haven't even got out of the Gospel of John. And already the Lord Jesus Christ has established his authority over nature, over animals, over illness, and over death. And he performed other miracles beyond. He took people who were paralyzed from their birth and he restored them and told them to get up and walk. Blindness. It's interesting to me that two of the miracles, and he did these on a regular basis, that he did. Providing sight to the blind. Something today that there's still no cure for. And yet the Lord did it. Miracles were used to witness to unbelievers throughout the Gospels, and they were designed to affirm the deity of Christ. In fact, the Lord does so many miracles affirming his deity that when all is said and done, and we get to the last statement written in the Gospel of John, the last Gospel account, right? The last one to be written. The Apostle John is inspired to write in John 21, 25 this, and there were also so many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. 
Jesus provides three affirmations of why he is the one and only true God. Affirmation number one, Jesus says, I am God because of the works that I do. Affirmation number two, I am God because of the salvation and security that I give. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Well, allow me just to digress for a moment because the Lord just didn't start referring to people as sheep right here. There's a, this is part of an ongoing conversation that started earlier at the beginning of John chapter 10. And Jesus is telling a parable about being a good shepherd. And during biblical times, and even today in many countries, there are shepherds who tend to flocks of sheep. And it's a dirty and dangerous job that offers very little uh, respect. It is, however, an important job to protect the sheep from thieves and wild animals and other predators. Perhaps most importantly, shepherds lead sheep to clean water and to edible vegetation so that they can survive. And the Latin word transliterated pastor actually means shepherd, and this is why some congregations are actually referred to as flocks because of that transliterated word. In Christ's day, some families' entire livelihood depended upon the sheep in which they were responsible for, and the Jews to whom Jesus is speaking to in the immediate context were all very familiar with shepherds. And it wasn't unusual for shepherds to go ahead and name their sheep. In the same way that we name our cats and we name our dogs. And I grew up on a farm in, a mid, in the Midwest, and we would even name some of our animals. You know, they just remind you sometimes of people. And you name them. It was a lot of fun to do that. But there was a reason for it, and they were, they were named because um, they would eventually learn their name and respond to their name. One commentator shared this. Um, Travelers in lands where old-fashioned sheep herding methods are still used have noticed the readiness with which the sheep of a large flock will recognize the shepherd's voice. Though several flocks are mingled, they speedily separate at the command of the shepherd while the command of a stranger has no effect on them. They're with the animals. And it was common in the ancient Near East to be out and they would actually team up and shepherds would get together and it would be like um, group watch, like even over in a, in a state of war so that other guys could sleep. One guy would stay awake, one shepherd, right? And all the troops would be mis- mixed together, right? And then in the morning they wake up and they, they call their troops and then they, they head out. The same was done with the sheep. The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking to, they, they understood this. His listeners would have certainly had this in mind as the Lord engaged them. And in the beginning of this parable of John chapter 10, Jesus talks about a door and that whoever enters through it is a shepherd of the sheep. And the Lord shares that a voice is heard by the sheep coming from the shepherd. And Jesus goes on to describe that the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice and recognize the sound of his voice as the shepherd leads them. And that shepherd knows them all by name. And he goes on to say, a stranger they simply 
will not follow because they do not recognize the voice. They got this, okay? Jesus explains that he is the door of the sheep. And Christ stated in John 10, 9, I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He's already featuring the salvation for us that he provides. Jesus was using this illustration to help the listeners see the necessity of responding to the sound of his voice. He was trying to to get them to understand that not only is he the door, but he's also the good shepherd. And he was telling them plainly that he was the Messiah, that he is the Savior. In verse 11, Jesus describes that a good shepherd will lay his life down for the sheep. Remember, being a shepherd was a dangerous job and would often involve the shepherd even risking his own life. And he even says that a hireling, you know, he's not going to stick around. He's going he's to take off. But a good shepherd would confront anything that threatened the lives or the well-being of the sheep and would even be willing to risk his own life. And then he goes on to explain this in the remainder of the parable. In verse 15, that he has come to lay down his life for the sake of his sheep, for the sake of his followers. And in this direct response, Jesus is affirming to all those who are listening that there is only one door, one shepherd, one voice that saves. And this is emphasized even more when we get a few chapters later in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus openly confronts those who do not believe him. He confronts those who refuse to listen to the sound of his his voice. And he goes on to to explain, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And he says in verse 27, my sheep, my followers, my disciples, believers, hear my voice. I am their shepherd. I know them. I have a personal relationship with them. I know their struggles. I know every detail of their daily lives. And they follow me. They follow me because they know I will safely lead them. They follow me because they trust me with their lives. They follow me because they trust in me and me alone. The Lord wanted them to know that he gives eternal life. Salvation is from him. And because he is the door, it is through him. It must happen through him. And the Pharisees were functioning as other voices. They were telling people, he's not the Messiah. They were telling people that this isn't the one. They were competing voices, and their skewed understanding of the Messiah was leading people to reject Christ. And so this warning that Jesus gives about not listening to other voices is most appropriate. And the problem today is just like during the time of Christ is that there are threats, very real threats, competing with the voice of Christ. Voices claiming that there are other ways of salvation. There's other ways to get to eternal life. Man-made religion. Muslims. Hindus. Buddhists. Mormons. Jehovah Witnesses. Seventh-day Adventists. These are modern-day expressions of the thieves and robbers 
similar to what Jesus was talking about in the opening verse of chapter 10. False teachers and prophets attempting to steal from the flock of God. And if someone wants to go to heaven, you must know and understand that Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. He is God, true God, because of the salvation that he alone gives through his gospel. And it also includes his security. Verse 28 says, And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this has gotten incredibly personal for the Lord. It's so personal to Him. I give them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. First personal pronouns. I, me, me, my. And Jesus Christ is affirming that he is God because of the salvation that only he can give. And it comes with a beautiful blanket of security that only he can provide. And here Jesus discloses an incredible reality. He not only says that those who follow him, those who are his sheep, that he's going to give them eternal life, but the English words translated in verse 28 where it says they will never perish are especially emphatic in the Greek. And they can actually be translated this way. And they shall certainly not perish to eternity. His sheep will be kept safe until and throughout eternity. Salvation comes with God's security. A security that is unmatched. It absolutely boggles my mind that we live in a world consumed by multiple levels of security. Think about it. Homeland security. People often express concern for job security, financial security, our homes, our cars, our businesses. Everything is protected by security systems. Yet when it comes to the most important type of security that we can ever know or possess, eternal security, the assurance of being safe and secure, not only in this life, but forever, people have no time to listen. Isn't that baffling? And it's just, baffling and here in verse 28 and 29 we read two of the greatest verses that a person who has placed their faith in jesus christ can ever know no stronger passage in the old testament or new testament exists for the absolute eternal security of every true christian here jesus says and i give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand I mentioned earlier that I grew up on a farm in the Midwest. One of the most difficult tasks, we had chores we had to do. And one of the most difficult, especially being younger men, we would have to fill up five-gallon buckets and fill them full of water and carry them. Okay? And there was some weight to them. 
Anyone know exactly how much a gallon of water weighs? 8.34 pounds. Looked it up last night. So if you have a five-gallon bucket, do the math, right? You're carrying over 40 pounds of water in one bucket. And so as young men, we would have to carry these this 80 pounds of water, right, through the length of the, the barn, okay? And your, your, your grip on those buckets, it would just, you would have to fight just to, to hang on because if they if it fell out of your hand, then you spill the water, it gets all your leg, it was messy. And we'd also have to do the same thing with bales of hay. They had twine that went around the bales. Some of the bales would be wet because they'd be um, maybe baled wet, and so they would, they, they would have additional weight to them, and you would pick them up by the twine, and you'd have to carry two bales of hay, and the twine just digs right into your hand. Or maybe you've had this experience. Huh? You go shopping at Wally World at Walmart, and you get there and you buy all your umpteen bags of groceries and other things that you need to get, and you get out to the, to the cart and you get it loaded into the car, and then you get back in and you, you pull into your parking space and you got to get them into the house or the apartment, and then you make a plan, right? And you're like, well, I don't want to make a trip for each one of these bags, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're, you're going to do this. You're going to take one of those bags, you're going to put one of them on this finger, and you're going to put one of them on this finger, and one of them on this finger, one, of them, one on your thumb. And you can get five bags in this hand. And I can do the same in this hand. Okay? I'm not, I'm not the only one, right? This is a shared experience. We, we, we carry all of those bags, right? And by the time we get to the door, I mean, it's, it's serious, right? Our grip is just like, ah, let's get these things set down somewhere. And the point is this. All of us are limited in our capacity to hold or to hang on to something. And Jesus affirms that his sheep will also be held in his omnipotent grip forever. Forever. That both he and the Father will never allow us to be snatched out of their hands. They will never lose their grip on us. They will never let go. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Right? And it's an all-powerful hand. It's got a hold of us. It's got a hold of us. And it's such a beautiful picture. And when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we talked about in our equipping hour this morning, as we put our trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on our behalf, and when we turn from our sinful pursuits and we repent and we trust in him, there's something that happens and God grabs a hold of us and he promises that he will never, ever, ever let go. Ever. Ever. Can't say ever enough ever let go of us. And we grab a hold of him. And his desire is that we grab a hold of him and that we walk with him. And our grip can be so weak at times. Can it? We can lose our grip to, to, to hang on, right? And slip. And sin is real. 
And he never, never lets go. He waits for us. And we grab back on. And we have the opportunity to glorify him as we live for him and as we cling to him. We cling to him. This offer of eternal security is truly mind-blowing. And this is why evangelism, this is what we talked about in our evangelism training this morning. We have been entrusted with that message. This is why we need to go. They need to understand the truth. They need to see what God says about salvation. God has called them to come to Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the voice. He's called them to come to Him on His terms. And we know what those terms are. And as our training taught us in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, right? We have the opportunity to pray for people. We have the opportunity to pursue open doors that God gives us for the sake of the gospel. We have the opportunity to proclaim that message with precision. And he wants us to proclaim it with precision. And I rejoice, and I, and I know everybody does here, that we rejoice in being in a fellowship and being in a church where God has allowed us to see the gospel with great clarity. Clarity that many, many other people don't have. And to whom much is given, much is required. We have the responsibility to steward that ministry of reconciliation. Well, Jesus provides three affirmation, affirmations why he is the one and only true God. Affirmation number one, Jesus says, what, I am God because of the deeds or the works that I do. Affirmation number two, I am God because of the salvation and the security I give. Affirmation number three, I am God because I and the Father are one. In verse 30, Jesus says this explicitly. I and the Father are one. God's word has declared for us that Jesus did the works of God because he was God. It also affirms that only through Christ can the gift of eternal life and security be received. And now comes the validation or affirmation from Jesus Christ that God the Father and God the Son are one. And the assertion that Jesus is making here is that Jesus and, and the Father are unified in essence and in nature. It's beautiful. One commentator had this to say. Only Jesus can say that he is one with the Father. None have said to Jesus, none have said as Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. None have prayed as Jesus prayed before he was crucified when he said in John 17, 1-5, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life, this eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Same commentator also shared this comment. 
I find it significant that no other self-proclaiming gods of any other religion claim equality with God the Father in Scripture. Yes, others may claim to be gods, but none claim equality with God the Father. And our application is pretty straightforward. There's a good chance, you know what could happen? You're going to go home today. You're going to be sitting there and maybe you'll flip on the TV and you'll see what's happening with Sochi and watch some more bobsledding, figure skating. My wife loves the figure skating. Um, And there's going to be a knock at the door. And somebody's going to get up from the house and you're going to go answer the door. You know who's going to be standing there? It's going to be some guy. And he's going to have literature in his hand. And he's going to be a Jehovah's Witness. And you know what he's going to come tell you? He's, he's going to want to give you information and tell you about the greatest man who ever lived. And openly deny the deity of Christ. Or maybe it's going to be this. You're going to have an opportunity with a coworker, and you're going to be sitting there and you're going to ha- be having conversations. And maybe you're trying to talk to him about um, God's love. And you're trying to share with them. And they're going to challenge you about whether Jesus was God. And you are going to be ready. You can be a voice of truth straight from Scripture. You will be able to use passages like Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, to those who have, re- has, have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And now you have today's passage as well that I trust will help us all see the comment that I opened up with, Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. It is not only true, it is exclusive. And it's not just exclusive, it's divisive right down to the core. So divisive that after Jesus concluded his response in verse 30, in verse 31 it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. When we faithfully proclaim that Jesus Christ is the one true God and that all other gods and all other religions or religious systems, including Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, churches of Scientology, unification churches, and numerous other cults, that they're listening to false voices, that they're not listening to the true voice of Christ. You know what? There's a good chance. There's a good chance they're going to pick something up to throw at you. And it may not be a rock, but certainly it's going to be an insult. It's certainly going to be persecution. It's certainly going to let you know that you're narrow-minded and you're judgmental. Isn't it? That's the response. And yet the Lord reminds us in Matthew 5, in verses 11 and 12, 
that we're blessed, right? When we're blessed, when, when, when we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Well, I hope that each person here today was encouraged and edified by this message. I also hope that you'll focus more on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only true God. He is God, true God, because of the works that he's done. He's God, true God, because of the salvation and the security that only he can provide. And he's God, true God, because he and the Father are one. Well, before I pray, I wanted to extend an invitation for everyone to come to our ongoing evangelism training. First hour next week. And we're going to have some special guests with us as our announcements shared. And we're going to have an opportunity to hear testimonies from uh, Daniel and Alesh, who are going to be coming with, um, uh, w- with our dear brother, Pastor Marcus. And so we're excited about that. And um, we'll also get a chance to hear from our faithful brother, Marcus Denny, as he preaches God's word to us. Um, the time is now. Point people. Use that name. The Lord Jesus Christ. Point people to the authority. Point people to Him. Yes, use the Bible to communicate. But point people to Him, the one to whom they're going to give an account. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, You're good. And oh, how we celebrate the wonderful gift of who you are, that you are God, true God, and that in your kindness and in your love for us, that you've unveiled those truths for us to see. You did that in your perfect timing. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, who doesn't recognize the sound of your voice, that in your goodness and in your kindness, you would allow this message to help them see that they will stand before you and that they will give an account directly to you for how they live their life. It's because you said so. Each of us will stand before you and give an account, Romans 14, 12. And Father, that should help them to see and to know that they need you and that their life will continue to spiral, that their life will continue to circle the drain, their life will continue not to give you the glory that you long to receive, that you're ready to allow them to be born again. You're ready to allow their hearts to be changed, to be converted, and to live according to your plan and your purposes, which are so much higher. Thank you for all of us who believe, those who you have done that for, yet you've allowed us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and help us walk in faithfulness in the stewardship of the gospel that has been entrusted into our hands, into our heads and into our hearts that we'll be faithful to share it. Father, thank you for this wonderful message this wonderful gift from your word, from you. And we look forward to seeing how it continues to shape us. We ask that you'll be with us this week. Allow us to encourage each other all the more. Build us up, grow us, refine us, shape us into the people that you want us to be. We plead for you to do that work. We ask for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.